Hi, I'm Christina Dennis, and you are listening to The Recovered Life Show. Every week, we bring you a Recovered Life discussion about rewiring your brain and how understanding your brain will help you fully live your best recovered life. Remember, addiction is a life-threatening condition, and the information in this discussion is provided as a resource only and is not to be used or relied on for any diagnostic or treatment purposes. This is not a substitute when professional diagnosis or treatment is needed. Now let's jump into the discussion. All right. Well, everybody, welcome to our Recovered Life Discussions, Rewire Your Brain. My name is Christina Dennis, and my co-mod today is the lovely Deanna. Um, Thank you all for coming. Hello. I am truly have been studying this last chapter of Atlas of the Heart, which is what our discussion will be about today um, for hours. It is has been exceptional. And so I'm going to start with a little breakdown for those of you who may not have been here the last three months or if you've dipped in and out. First, I want to say uh, do not worry. If you've read the book, if you haven't read the book, there will be fabulous information that we can all take away. Each chapter that we have studied of the 87 emotions and experiences has been, I think, almost a book within itself, and they are all on the replay. So if you um, have shown up today or it's only a few times that you've been here and you're interested, I really encourage you to go to the Recovered Life Club and hit up um, the replays on a lot of this information because it is phenomenal. In most of the cases, I have written a description um, or at least a share of what we've been discussing. And uh, I think, as I was telling Deanna right before people started showing up, that there's probably three weeks worth of information. And um, so to begin the discussion, we have been taking each chapter of Atlas of the Heart um, and breaking it down. And um, Atlas of the Heart actually has a second line to its title, Cultivating Meaningful Connection. (laughs) And I know that we've shortened it, but this entire chapter is is a summation of you know, the things that we learned in the previous chapters, as well as why in the world that we even started this, why she even wrote this book and why did we even start it. So um, for those that haven't been here and for those that have had, just a quick reminder, the first set of chapters, I think it's 11 chapters, I'm not exactly sure, were all about defining emotions and experiences. So, and the the premise behind it was, um, and to remind everybody of the opening story, how difficult would it be for you to go to the doctor and try to tell them something hurts with your mouth taped and your arm behind your back? And she was explaining that that's kind of the situation we get into when we're trying to explain or even articulate our emotions and experiences. So uh, for many people who may not know, Brene Brown is in recovery and so much of what she has shared in this book has has really tied back to many of the things that I've learned in recovery as well as new applications. And so why do we study this book? 
and the rewire your brain because we know that language is incredibly important and that we can rewire our brain with knowledge. We can, we literally can change our brain by thinking. And so this has been an amazing exercise. I mean, truly, I, I would say it's been an experience. How about you, Deanna? It has been awesome. This book has, yeah. like, I, I'm, I have to read it again. I have other people that are interested in doing a book club around this again, because like mm -hmm. you can just dive so deep and learn so much. So I, I'm going to quickly t talk about the science part, because uh, for those that have just joined, Deanna was sharing that, you know, the first first time she started reading this chapter, it was felt very clinical, but um, it's important to share uh, what I believe what she did is a good job of sharing exactly why the theories and the information that she gave in this book were um, were scientific. And, you know, she opens it up <laughs> with uh, a quote, as many do, um, as every chapter was, and it's from A Scandal in Bohemia, and it says, it is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data, and sensibly one begins to twist facts to suit them, their lives, instead of the theory to suit the facts. And I thought that was so important, and what that reminded me of um, is that, you know, I think that there were a lot of emotions and experiences, Deanna, that I had theories on, you know, that I had limited information and I was suiting the explanation to my, um, my thoughts versus facts. And what I love about the scientific part of, of this book is that it really gave us such good information. And the reason why she shares it is to kind of explain that this isn't necessarily her opinion. Um, Brene Brown is a grounded theory researcher, um, which means that she researches in a qualitative way. She starts with the facts and the data and then moves that up to theory. Um, and in the circle of science, which is explained at the beginning of this chapter, there are a lot of researchers will come behind her and they will literally take the theory and then drill it down looking at the data. And that makes a circle and makes that this kind of information and research um, as accurate as it can be. And she goes on to explain that if there is a new, um, a new set of data, it doesn't mean that the theory was actually wrong. It just means that we understand the information coming from the theory a little bit better. And, you know, what is a theory? Um, it's a set of interrelated concepts, definitions, and propositions that present a systematic view of something while specifying the relationship. Well, specifically or specifying the relationship between all the variables the, and the purpose. It is to, a theory is to explain and predict phenomena. And so I thought that was very cool that she included it because it helped me kind of understand that, you know, all of this information on experiences and emotions, you know, came to this theory and it was all there was a purpose behind all of it. And the purpose was so that we could have 
and do the second part of the title of the book. And I'd love for you to read the chapter, Deanna, so that we can kind of bring it back to that. Yes, I can. Sorry, I'm in a different space today and my uh, my book isn't staying shut. Okay, uh -oh. so <laughs> I mean, it, it keeps shutting on me. <laughs> um, so I, it's cultivating meaningful connection. That's that's how it how the chapter kind of starts. So, which part did you want me to read? Um, just that, just uh, the like name of the book one more time, and then how we are going to close it down with this one: cultivating meaning and uh, say it one more time. Well, in this in the book part of it, I mm -hmm. actually it's kind of funny in the book. So this is like an additional bonus chapter. So, oh. yeah. So it it just start like. I, I wasn't even sure today. It was like, is this the last chapter of the book? But gotcha. it is. It's like bringing all the 13 chapters all together. And so it just kind of jumps into cultivating meaningful connection and gotcha. starts with the theory. Um, yeah, so there's not much to read in that except for that. We're bringing it all together, all the chapters that we've been discussing and why we're talking about it, why it's important. <laughs> You know, and also just to kind of give some background, I have the audio version, which I have studied like a textbook and Deanna has the actual physical book. And so that's why I can, you know, confer with her what, you know, what does the book look like versus what I've heard. And I want to open it up at this time, even though it's early, because I think that um, this is, is going to be a meaningful conversation. Some ground rules are that we use first names only because this is replayed and rebroadcasted on my uh, podcast but um, and also we use respectful comments and treat each other respectfully so if anybody wants to come up i see we have some some players in the room that have helped me so much and you are welcome to come up um, while uh, we go into a little more explanation on theory um, the reason why we're opening the book, like I said, and she, I believe that she started the chapter off this way, was to explain that where all this data came from. And we have theories all the time. We have everyday theories. And the only difference between an everyday theory and the inductive research that Brene Brown did was that hers are based on observations or data that methodically, that they methodically collected and analyzed. And to get the information in this book, they, they interviewed somewhere like, I think, 7,000 people. And you'll see if you ever do purchase the book or want to, you know, and I highly recommend people do and study it again. It, she also used a lot of data and, you know, metadata is taking all of the previous researchers' um, information and including that. Now, this all comes to a place where she discusses that for 23 years, she has been working on the theory of meaningful connection. And there was always a missing link, which I kind of love, you know, and if you're a fan, you've read a lot of her books, you know, Vulnerability, Dare to Lead, uh, a lot of the, the information that she's come out, starting with her original TED Talk on vulnerability that kind of catapulted her into fame um, has always been moving toward this meaningful connection, this grounded theory on meaningful connection. However, she could, she said that in all of her previous books, there was always a missing 
part to actually explain it. And she believes that in this book, she has finally, um, finally put that missing piece into the system so that, that the actual meaningful connection theory can come full circle. And that elusive piece of rediscovery was, is the rediscovery of the Buddhist concept of near enemy. And I remember we read this in chapter seven, and I was like, I love that. And I don't study Buddhism. Um, perhaps that'll be something that we do in recovered life in the future. But I had not really heard of this concept before. And Deanna, I'd love to know if you have, because you may have, and what you thought about that. I found that I'd never really thought of near enemies um, and I, you know, I wrote something down. I might be jumping ahead here, but I think that it's beneficial, uh, on, on page 253, if anybody has the book, it says, I needed the concept of near enemies because when it comes to cultivating meaningful connection, the far enemies, the real opposites are not what get in the way most of the time. So when I read that, it made me yes. go back and really want to like really lean into what is near enemies and man, is it powerful? And it really opened my eyes to my own behavior and what near enemies are and how they get in the way. Because like, I, I think I'm good. I think like I have my best interest and other people's interest in mind, but often times I, and I might be saying this, I don't know. I feel like I'm falling short sometimes, mm -hmm. but I'm like, why? I'm trying so hard. Why did that mm -hmm. not work out? It's because I think that it's the near enemies that I didn't recognize. It's amazing because uh, really this concept allows us to exactly what you just said, Deanna, understand why the language we're using or the connection that we're trying to attempt to have isn't working. And to give people an idea of what the near enemy concept is, it's, um, you know, near enemies are states that appear similar to the desired uh, quality but actually undermined it. So for example, the way it was introduced in this book and previous chapters was the near enemy of compassion is pity. And that was a huge chapter that we spent quite a bit of time on to actually understand how we can have empathy and compassion and what that really looks like. And she went on to give us a few others. So um, the far enemies are the opposite of what we're trying to achieve and they're easier to see, you know, they are way easier to see. So the near enemy of loving kindness is sentimentality. Wow, I never thought of that, where the far enemy of loving kindness is ill will. So it's very easy to see ill will when somebody's trying to, or when we have ill will that is disconnecting us versus sentimentality. Um, the near enemy of compassion is pity. That's what, um, that was what was explained to us in previous chapters, but the far enemy is cruelty. And I thought, yes, this makes sense. So without the language of the near and far enemy, without the tools of emotional granularity and self-awareness, the difference between how we want to show up and the near enemy of these practices feels nuanced. But this nuance 
So it feels like we're splitting words, right? Just a little bit, but the nuance makes all the difference between wholeheartedness connection and brokenheartedness, heartedness connection. Near enemies may seem like the qualities or what we believe are important, but they have even been mistaken for, uh, for them and are different, often undermining our practice. So the near enemy depicts how spirituality can be misunderstood or misused to separate us from life. And I loved this example and I thought it's very cool to include it in today's conversation because I think that for those of us who are recovering and in the, the recovery world, um, I think we kind of understand this, right? At least I, I certainly learned about true spirituality and connection when I first got into recovery program long before I had been a member of the church. I was raised in the church and I knew that something wasn't right. You know, that place, you know, that's one of the places that I felt pity instead of compassion from other people. And so she goes to explain that spirituality is the deeply held belief that we are all connected to each other by something greater than ourselves. Um, and she, she explains that atheists, she knows a lot of atheists that are completely connected to all of humanity. When one suffers, they suffer. And they know that if we are not all free, no one is free. Um, in contrast to religious people um, who wear scripture on their bodies, but demonstrate no connection to anyone who's suffering except themselves or people like them. So when we're talking about spirituality, both in recovery, if you came through a 12 step um, or other factions, um, it is based around spirituality. Um, and that is what she means is that representation that we are all one. The near enemy looks like, I'm having trouble reading my handwriting. The near enemy looks like connection on the surface, but ultimately drives us away. Without self-awareness, near enemies become the practice that we undertake that separate us rather than connect us. So another near enemy of love is attachment. What did you think about that, Deanna? Because that kind of got me right in the gut, being somebody who focuses on recovering from codependency. Yeah, I, this, this part of the chapter, I just like wrote down, wrote down the page, like go back to this page and read it. Um, because I found that this is where I started to really connect with this chapter and start to recognize in myself when I, when I am showing signs or, or reaching for that attachment instead of love like i'm mm -hmm. being able to recognize that um like it says i'll love you if you'll love me back i'll mm -hmm. love you but only if you will if you'll be the way i want and it makes me think of my relationships and how i love people and i i am i i wrote this i am guilty i am totally of guilty of near enemy emotions as i said when it comes to this so recognizing it and i don't want to be that you know i want sure. to be loving not attached and so recognizing that really has me um thinking more about it and how i can better show up when i recognize that 
Well, and I think that's the whole point, and I understand why she spent so much time uh, fleshing out the near enemy concept, because it really explains what all of our obstacles are. It's not just you who uses near enemy. Um, we, if we don't have language and information to explain and really figure out what our values are, you know, truly figure out what we're feeling. And we'll get onto that later on and probably next week when we talk about embodiment versus disembodiment. But without this concept, we would never know. We'd be walking around saying exactly what you said a few moments ago. I'm trying to connect with people. I'm trying to show up and be there for people, but it's not working. And it is definitely, I remember a business book that was very, very popular 15, 16 years ago called, that was the opposite, um, Good to Great from Jim Collins. And he opens it up by saying, the opposite of great is good. And, uh, you know, I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but there was a time where, you know, I was heavy into business and leadership and, and it's very, very much the same thing. I like the way she explains um, equanimity because I think this is one that we may get wrong, especially in recovery, where we focus on our side of the street. And, and remember, uh, for those of you who've joined us and see recovered life and see addiction, this is that kind of second part where we're talking about, you know, uh, knowing ourselves more and then therefore having the ability to know others. But equanimity is not indifference. The near enemy is indifference. You know, where we say, well, I don't care, you know, um, what's going on over there. I'm not going to get involved. It's not my part. So it's true equanimity is not withdrawal. You know, it's balanced engagement of all aspects of life. And so I, for me, I could see that, you know, life is suffering, um, those kinds of philosophies and taking it to this next belief and coming up with that all on my own. How about you, Deanna? I was just going to say that um, I loved this. I loved this one. And once again, and I need to, I want to get rid of the word guilty in my mind as I read this, because I keep telling myself, you're so guilty of this, but I need to have compassion for myself. We all are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I also feel that like, I'm, I'm glad that, um, that we are reading this book or that I'm reading this book in a space of recovery and a space of people that are also uh, possibly feeling some of the very similar feelings that I feel. And one of the things I, I really liked in this passage was we feel a certain peaceful relief because we withdraw from experience and from the energies of life, but indifference is based on fear. And that was like, oh, that's me. Okay. I totally, I'm like, I'll say, you know, it's, it is what it is. It will be what it will be. I'm not going to attach myself to this feeling or I'm just going to kind of walk away from it. It's as it says, it's transitory. Mm -hmm. And I, um, yeah, I, I'm like, I felt, oh, Brene Brown, you're attacking me on this quote. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Isn't, it's a good thing to recognize. <laughs> well, to me, it was very, very helpful to actually integrate the side of the street and why it always felt weird to me when people, you know, what is codependency and what isn't codependency. And I mean, I'm thinking tomorrow's room setting healthy boundaries. We could talk for an hour on this concept alone because um, 
to true equanimity, I can't say it, equanimity is not a withdrawal. I mean, it is a balanced engagement of all aspects of life. Um, and it, that just blew me away. And it gave me an idea of exactly um, how I am, how I can strive to be this person who wants to have meaningful connections without dipping into codependency, you know, without, um, you know, using, I'm keeping my side of the street clean as an excuse to turn my back on people and to disconnect um, subtly. Ooh, Amber joined us. Thanks, Amber. How are you today? Good, good morning. I'm just waking up. I was listening um, the the part about um, like balance instead of withdrawal or like connection or withdrawal. That's that's something that I've done um, or I've really struggled with. Um, and I and I'm I can tell I'm more recently I've been finding more of that balance. Um, but it's kind of hard, especially like when you're like, oh, I don't want to be a codependent or, oh, I don't want to be attached or, oh, I don't want to be any of that. So then you withdraw dramatically and it's like I c completely cut off um, any kind of connection um, or it's just, I, that's that's what I've done. Um, that even with like, friendships and all kinds of relationships and so it's it's uh it's really interesting that um that y'all are talking about this because this is uh, a very like kind of delicate um it's almost like an art you have to learn how to kind of move with it and find balance in it um from what i've found um and yeah <laughs> you know lots so much compassion too <laughs> If you are newly sober, trying to get sober, or you've been sober for decades and are looking to take your sobriety to the next level, the Recovery Breakthrough six-week transformation concierge coaching program might be right for you. Have Damon Frank and Christina Dennis build a custom roadmap to get you on the path to getting what you really need. Receive hands-on concierge coaching and stay focused and productive with our daily check-ins. If you're ready to experience your recovery breakthrough and start the journey towards the transformation you deserve, book a free get to know you call today and find out what is possible in your recovery. To find out more about recovery breakthrough and to book your free call, go to recoveredlife.us. That's recoveredlife.us. You're listening to The Recovered Life Show. Oh, I love that. It is an art. It is an art. And it is incredibly delicate and nuanced. And so people who, who may be going, why are they continuing to talk about this concept since it isn't part of it? It's really the missing piece of, of some of my disconnections uh, over my life, uh, all of them probably, or a lot of them, because the near enemy is so stealthy, we often, when we're met with that emotion, we often internalize the pain and feel like there is something wrong with us, okay? Mm -hmm. And this is very interesting to me because I know whenever I've shared something 
and uh, you know, in a meeting or with a person, uh, I know that when it what it feels like when they're saying all the right things, but you know, it doesn't quite make me feel like I've either been heard or that it's okay to have my feelings. Um, what do you think about that, Deanna or Amber? Well, I am, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that my, my brain is bouncing all around with this mm -hmm. because so many good uh, things I want to hold on to. But one of the things that I'm just, that Amber said was that it's difficult to balance all these things. And I was just thinking that what I tend to do is if I can't balance them, if I can't, like even thinking of these of these near enemies, if like like you say, like you're saying all the right things, but it's, it's not registering, it's not hitting the right way, or I'm saying all the right things, I think, and it's not connecting where I want it to. So if I can't find this balance with all these things, I tend to just drop everything. I just let mm. go and say, okay, well, I'll just build from the beginning again. Like, let me put all the tools back in my toolbox and build everything up from, from the start, which doesn't, has not been working for me. So it's also, also understanding, and Michael O'Brien said this yesterday, um, that it's, I mean, and take this as you will for yourself, but for me, um, it's kind of impossible to balance everything. Mm -hmm. So what I liked in this chapter, it said, is a balanced engagement with all aspects of life. So I really liked that, that you're not going to be able to balance everything. And I'm not, I can't balance everything. So I tend to just throw the dishes on the ground and say, forget about it. But if I can balance my engagement and feel good about that, then I feel like that's a good starting point um, for, for this that we're talking about. Well, and I so agree. And yes, we're all going to, because we'll get into more of that later about our own experiences and how much information we have. Um, there are a couple revelations uh, that she shares that were literally the opposite of what she had shared prior to writing this book. And so that really kind of blew me away and, and helped me adjust. But you know, when somebody returns, like say we, we share a story or we go to connect with somebody and they don't have the language or they're using one of the near enemy words, you know, or feelings, um, we will feel manipulated and gaslighted. And it really helped me to explain and understand the harm of gaslighting even at a deeper level. Um, so, you know, when I needed a friend to kind of come, go there with me and stay there with me, and they used some of these, you know, near enemies that gave me pity instead of compassion, but it kind of sounded like that was what they were supposed to do. That is what gaslighting is. Mm -hmm. mm. So anyway, this all is the way she put together the new theory on cultivating meaningful connections. And there are three big pieces to cultivating a meaningful connection. And language, which was the primary, language about emotions and experiences was the primary bulk of this book, is, is connected to all three of these. So I'm gonna share her theory on meaningful connection. It has three big pieces, 
grounded confidence, which we will dive deeper into and have heard before in this book, um, the courage to walk alongside with somebody and good story stewardship. stewardship. Um, and I love that. Um, you know, like I, I would not have figured out what a connection looks like. I would never have been able to get to these three pieces. So how do you, um, when you heard that and saw that in the next chapter, wasn't that kind of like, oh, okay, now I have a map to, to figure out how I can cultivate a meaningful connection. Yeah, I definitely, it, it is like a map to, and it kind of breaks it down pretty easily. Um, and you know, it's easy, but I, I was thinking, oh, I'm great at connecting with people. Oh my goodness. Breaking this down into grounded confidence, the courage to walk alongside somebody and story stewardship. Um, as, as we will break this down, I, it was extremely helpful for me and it, and I got to get rid of the guilty word today because it just, I recognize that, which is super helpful. Okay. I don't feel guilty. It's very helpful in helping me recognize how I am showing up to connect with people. And I recognize that sometimes I'm not showing up the way that I want to be. So this was, um, yeah, this is, this is, this is a good, a good one that I think we could spend some time on. Yes. And the emotional expansion is what we started this with, even though I didn't know that when I opened up the book and started to read it three months ago with the group, I had an inkling that I wanted to learn more language, but I had no idea the uh, expansion and the stretch, you know, and stretching can be uncomfortable. Hey, Andrew, thanks for coming up. How are you today? Well, I'm so grateful to be given the opportunity to speak. I've just um, been to two other rooms and I've had to leave. They had incredibly interesting topics, but it got so laborious. Mm. And I'm having to, yesterday, I had the same problem. I ended up with two rooms, amazing. The people there were small rooms. So I have to balance my intolerance and judgmental uh behavior with recognizing time is precious and i wish people will come to the point and be concise you know what do you want to say self-awareness perception what do you want to say how fast can you say it being aware of the society advertising how they work their messages are really fast you know how you can take that on board i mean i, I get so saddened by a hypnotherapist in one of the rooms she was just rambling on and on, trying to find clients. I couldn't bear it. <clears throat> but, you know, what you just said and the fact that you've invited me up is amazing, you know, because I had no profile. And, you know, someone, <laughs> they bent my arm and said, Andrew, do a profile. And I did that. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me, Andrew. Yes, yes. Um, in uh, The Recovered Life, we want all to join. Um, and we give people uh, opportunity. It would be very boring if it was just me up here speaking. And I love talking to Deanna, but this is really what the room is about, is discussion. And uh, I hear you sometimes. Um, how do you balance my, you know, for me, my tolerance to sit through something, depending on what I'm going through, 
and you know also setting healthy boundaries is kind of that same balancing act so i appreciate you coming up all right so on to the three big pieces grounded confidence courage to walk alongside someone and story stewardship so grounded confidence was a concept that Brene Brown first introduced in her book, Dare to Lead. And the core, uh, see, I'm struggling reading my Henry. It's not for, it's not the fear that gets us away from the courage. It is how we self protect um, when we feel uncertain. So when she talked about this concept of grounded confidence, um, she was talking about in the Dare to Lead book, and she said it was in its infancy when she wrote that book. They had just kind of gotten started, and so they're expanding on this theory and saying this is, you know, one of the key pieces and elements to cultivating meaningful connection. She says the things that get in the way of grounded confidence are armoring behavior, and that keeps us from showing up in ways that we are aligned with our values and once we can recognize and remove the armor, we can replace it with grounded confidence. Um, there are three parts that she originally shared, but she has told us that she thinks there will be more information around this confidence. And I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, its own little book. Um, little, that's a funny word when you're talking about <laughs> Brene Brown. That's not accurate. But um, the three parts uh, that she originally introduced was the ability to rumble with vulnerability, staying curious, and practicing, practicing new skills um, and fuller concepts with fuller concepts and more properties once you get that. Um, this is a kind of confidence that is driven by a commitment to learning and improving which I think is amazing. I think that's one of the things that, that the recovered life is all about, that I'm all about, and people in recovery show up with this drive. And so that made me kind of smile, like we've all got a little bit of this in us. You know, if you've chosen to live a life without uh, an anesthesia or without processes that kept you safe in your relationships, in your mind, um, with basically being opening, being open to an entire new life, you are opening and open. You have a commitment to learning and improving. And uh, so I'm going to quickly say what the near enemy of learning and improving is, because that was mind blowing to me and the far enemy. And then we can talk a little bit about grounded confidence. Um, so the near enemy of learning and improving, which is one of the key factors of having grounded confidence, is knowing and proving. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. And this, what's funny is that when we come across people that are knowing and can prove something, we believe that they have confidence. But actually, the act of knowing and proving is a function of low self-worth, which is... I mean, it makes sense now, but I can tell you there have been plenty of times where I have seen somebody and thought they're confident, or perhaps I kind of thought they were a little overconfident um, and saw that there was a little bit of self-worth in there because they were always proving their point. 
Now, the far enemy of learning and improving is a fragile self-worth that drives us, drives us to self-protect at all costs, which kind of speaks back to armor, wearing armor. And so I'd love to hear what anybody up on the speaking stage has to say about learning and, um, what did I say? Learning and improving versus knowing improving. I would love to say something, Go Christina. For it. I noticed in my fellow human beings and in my past as a freelance photographer working for top advertising agencies in London, people do not like listening to their voices and they're quite allergic to seeing pictures and representations of themselves. So being able to integrate and balance that sense of who I want to be, who I fantasize about myself and the reality of how other people perceive me is so important, you know. Thank you. Yeah, that does speak to being aligned with our values. Um, Deanna or Amber or both, what did you think about this, you know, this um, concept of grounded confidence being learning and improving? Well, I'll take this um, with some humor involved. Uh, I was just looking at my profile picture here with my husband and I in it, and I it's thought, so well, he's the <laughs> thanks. I was just, I'm like, he's the knowing, improving one, and I'm the 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 sad self worth. That's not what it was, but <laughs> 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 like that's kind of the fragile self worth. That's what it. That's and I was just kind of like. In the way that we interact with each other, it reading this helps me see um, my how I can be better and how he can be better. But that's not my responsibility; that's his. But it just—it's funny to recognize in our relationship um, that we both do that, and we're both really. And this book has been really helpful um, for me, at least, because he's not reading it. Um, but to be able to recognize that and. And see that I do, I do tend to go to a fragile self-worth. I do, I have a fragile self-worth and I'm working on that constantly. And so one of the things that we try to do is that, are we trying to connect or are we trying to be right? Are we trying to make a point that has to be heard or are mm. we trying to connect? So, I mean, we're still learning the language, um, around how to do that but this book is being is very helpful in in cultivating that well and it you know it's so so good i just love that you always bring real life experiences and you're willing to continue to share and show up um i, I what this reminds me of is humility you know the the intellectual humility that we spoke about last week uh, having, you know, how, how actually grounded that makes us. You know, humility is an openness to learning with a balance of an accurate assessment of our contributions, including our strengths, imperfections, and opportunities for growth. And so I felt like this is, this falls right back into what um, she's saying about being an important part of grounded confidence. And uh, she actually will go into explain that the near enemy of humility or grounded confidence is actually modesty. So um, I think this this is very very cool. 
All right, let me flip to it. So the skill set to develop grounded confidence, learning and improving first. Second is knowing the language of human emotion, which is what we've been studying for three months. Um, you know, the we, within this, for those who haven't been here from the beginning, we deep dove into 87 emotions and experiences in this book, which is phenomenal. Um, practicing courage. So being willing to rumble with vulnerability, staying curious and practice humility, which is, like I said, the near enemy is confusing, modesty, insecurity, um, or the far enemy of humility is hustling and hubris, which we also talked about. And I'd love to hear, um, Amber, what you have to say about those four, because I feel like that's a really concise list of what we want to look for when we're trying to build grounded confidence. I'm sorry, Christina, I didn't hear those last four. Oh, that's okay. No problem. Deanna, did you, did you see anything that popped out to you with the skill set? I think it's, well, I have to say that the way that you presented it right now uh, helped me actually, even though I have the book right in front of me, the way I was reading it, the way it's on the pages, it was confusing to me. And it's kind of charty on, on mm. in the book, which my brain sees things like that, little color boxes, and my brain's like, we're doing homework, don't. Um, so, I which I, <laughs> which I am going to be doing homework. So maybe that's why I have an adverse feeling towards this. Um, but no, it, knowing and applying the language of human experience and emotion, rumbling with vulnerability. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm jump, I'm not reading everyone specifically. Um, practicing humility. I think that these things I thought I was doing a great job at, but knowing, then reading examples from her book and just thinking about it and researching it some on my own, I realized that I'm, I'm more so doing a lot of the near enemy things than actually really practicing grounded confidence, which it's a practice. So good. Mm -hmm. So exciting for me that, that I don't have to feel like I'm falling short. I'm learning and I get to practice these things. So those are my two thoughts on it. Can I yeah, share I something? Oh, please, Amber. Um, whenever I hear about the near enemy and then the far enemy, to me, it reminds me of immediate reaction and then also like more relaxed, like presence, like, um, like your, like our immediate reaction to something would be the near enemy. If we're not like in, if we're not like actually thinking or processing kind of what's happening or we're not, um, mm. I don't know. It just, it feels very reactionary to me is interesting to me because it's like the quick, that's what we go to, whether it's the way we were programmed or whatever, but it just, that's what came up for me. No, you hit it right on the head, Amber, and it would go on to explain it. It's the whole purpose of going through this. We will default to self-protection. We will default to the information that we have, you know, think back to being at the doctor's office trying to explain what hurts um, with your mouth taped and your arm behind you. Well, you know, we will go to what we know how to do immediately. And it's so, um, it's so important to 
examine near enemy and far enemy and to have the language to do it because you know there were many things that I learned in this book after being in, in recovery for 25 years you know the biggest one of the biggest ones was that envy uh, resentment is the M um, envy family you know that when I you know had a resentment against somebody for uh, those who didn't hear this it was actually envy because I didn't it wasn't that I didn't want them to have something it was that I wasn't giving that something to myself and in most cases that made it work sorry I was I'm just over here saying mm-hmm yep totally that resonates so much with me yeah so you know I only knew resentment in the way that I have been taught it so I think that absolutely I if before reading that I would have always thought that you know it affects my security affects this but I never would have I've always would have thought that I don't like that person or I don't like that versus I'm envious of it it really changed my perception about that whole word which is a huge word in the recovery world um, we talk a lot about resentments and I swear I want to go back to some of my um, old fourth steps because I came up through the 12 steps and look at the things that I called resentments and wonder if they're actually you know products of envy or where, where was it anger or rage you know because I remember filling out that first one and already knowing without you know, having a lot of experience in recovery that the resentment word wasn't exactly what I was look, you know, didn't feel like it fit um, what I was thinking. But I want to quickly go to the next section because we're going to have to end at 10. And I think this is such a good one for us to stop at because um, we will not get to all of it today, but it is such a beautiful um, a beautiful thing to focus on, especially for those of us in recovery. And it's um, feeling embodied and connected with self. We do not talk about what happens when we are disembodied or disconnected with our true self. And that brings it, I think that brings that other layer of, you know, this is a big part of what we miss, especially for me, I'll just speak, I guess, for myself, but those of us in recovery, you know, we'll have the tools where we prioritize our thinking over our feelings. But this kind of helps me look at there is a serious component to healing and recovery, especially if you have trauma. And I've never met an addict who doesn't have trauma um, that needs to be addressed. And uh, also, these, the way my body feels with a near enemy is going to give me a clue that I'm not actually getting my needs met, or I feel like I'm being gaslighted, or I'm not showing up as my authentic self and truly connected. Uh, that, those kind of clues start in my body long before they show up in my thinking. Um, we have done a book study on this book and, and perhaps I'll do chapters moving forward. The body keeps the score. And in that, the trauma researcher, Bessel van der Klok, I never know if I say his name right, uh, trauma victims cannot recover until they become familiar with and befriend 
the sensations of their bodies. Um, being in a being frightened means that you live in a body that is always on guard. Angry people live in angry bodies. The bodies of a child abuse victim will not be able to heal until they find a way to relax and feel safe. Like you won't even be able to get to it until we know how to regulate our nervous systems. Um, their, their sensations for those of us who are trauma abuse survivors are the way that our body is interacting with the world and telling us. Physical self-awareness is the first step to releasing the tyranny of the past. And uh, I know we're going to pick this up next week, but I, before I want to hear uh, Deanna and Amber's response to that, that that was inserted next, right? And learning about grounded confidence. I could talk about this for a very long time, so I won't. Um, but I, I will mention that when I was 22 years old, after experiencing a lot of trauma in my life, um, I finally went and saw, for my mother's instructions, an internal specialist because I had so many physical, really bad symptoms. And I went to see a physician an internal specialist named Dr. Silver in Los Gatos, California. And he was the first doctor I'd seen that finally said to me, girl, you just need to do some yoga. And it sounds so basic and simple, but what he was really telling me was that what's going on in your body is not from anything you ate. It's not from the things you're ingesting. It is from trauma. It's from you're holding on to things. Uh, that you need to let go. And he wasn't a therapist, so it took me a long time to discover that I needed therapy around trauma so that I could get rid of the physical symptoms I had. And man, is that a process. It is such a process. And I will say that it did not, I had some serious physical symptoms um, and it did not, and I'll thank both you ladies on the stage right here for contributing to my healing journey in big ways. Um, but it wasn't until I got sober that I could even start to really heal anything was I had to stop. I did have to stop ingesting poison. That's the truth. But um, yeah, it, it's when I said I could talk about it for hours and I said I wouldn't. And here I go. All right. Thank you for listening. <laughs> that was barely three minutes. So I think we're good, friend. And I think it's really, really important. And that's why I don't want to rush through it because disembodiment is how every um, addict shows up in recovery. Um, and it's by design and it's on purpose. And you know, in my case, I drank alcoholically until I could get to a place with the right people and resources to actually learn how to navigate my nervous system. And I don't think we talk enough about it in the recovery world. Um, I, I believe very strongly that that, you know, and I love AA, I love it, but it doesn't address the trauma. And, and that's by design, you know, the singleness of purpose for 12 steps is to discuss the poison that we are ingesting. But I knew for my own recovery, I needed to go further into it because if I was going to start feeling safe in my body, I needed to be able to understand it. Um, and know how to help it when it was in trouble, um, you know, so that I wasn't re-traumatized. 
Amber, what do you think? I bet you know. Um, yeah, this is great. I, uh, what amazed me from what I've learned is that um, when our bodies don't feel safe enough to relax or feel safe in general, it'll continuously fight to whatever we're fighting out. So it doesn't matter whatever form it comes into, learning to be able to ground yourself or to be able to find safety and to be able to calm yourself down is going to be the best way to like process trauma and move through it because safety is the most important thing that your body needs to understand and know because if you don't have safety it's going to constantly fight and you're never going to constantly have that ability to even move past some of the traumas because your body is going to be constantly in fight or flight so yeah i mean that's <clears throat> that's all about <laughs> the work that i do um on that level of what i'm learning is like you have to get somebody in a very safe relaxed place and then be able to move past and through the processes of whatever that is so that they can heal properly and move on um, and it can be in all forms medication is a big one for people that have i mean i've been on different um different things to help me um be able to calm down or uh, meditation prayer or even like when we're together and we're sharing in recovery feeling safe being able to calm down the nervous system and relax that's a big one um but it's 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 huge so yeah that's cool it's 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 so important um, it totally activates a different part of our body and our mind that we, we don't necessarily can activate when we're in our trauma. So, Exactly, exactly. And, and I highly recommend The Body Keeps the Score for people who maybe question whether their trauma should have that much effect on them or, you know, feel like, hey, I did the steps. Why is it still there? Um, that is that whole entire book is dedicated to research and theories that came from research, both quantitative and qualitative, that help us know why this work needs to be the work of our lives, taking care of ourselves and figuring it out. So, you know, we hit the top of the hour. I just thank you for everyone who has been here and shared. We will be picking it up uh, again next Tuesday, and I really hope many people come because the information and the writings of Brene Brown in this specific book on this specific theory have, I mean, like I said, I've been around a while, and these have changed some of my thinking, and it's just so imperative. Uh, one, of the, one of the tenets of the recovered life is to keep cultivating these connections so thank you Deanna thank you Amber for coming up tomorrow on recovered life we will be back with the setting healthy boundaries room um, the recovered life discussion starts at nine and once again um, I appreciate everyone who came if you have any questions or you have any thoughts please reach out to me DM me directly um, I in recovery I am very supportive of folks so if you're just starting or you have questions uh, I want to make sure that I can give you the resources that uh, will help you 
Keep the conversation going. Join Recovered Life, a community of like-minded people who are looking to live their best recovered lives. Membership is free, and you can apply at recoveredlife.us.